Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a Retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, we break into the 300s with episode 301. I am joined by Dr. Priya Vakaria and Dr. Ajay Curry to discuss a few articles from the upcoming edition of Retinal Physician. This is the July 2021 edition, available online for free at retinalphysician.com and in print. Uh, the Retinal Physician, and you can subscribe and get that in print uh, across the world. And we cover a few articles. This this issue really focuses on diversity and training. So we talk a little bit about vitreo retinal fellowship training, oversight, and assessment. Uh, then we talk about diversity in retina, diversity in ophthalmology residencies and retina fellowships, and there's a couple good panel discussions of this issue. And we end by a discussion of integrating new technology and devices into your surgical practice. As always, you can find um, these episodes on our website, and you can find a link in the episode description to claim CME credits for this podcast episode and many other podcast episodes. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now back with a preview of the July 2021 uh, edition of Retinal Physician. Joining me for this are two of my colleagues, first in alphabetical order, Dr. Ajay Kurian. Thanks for having me back, Jay. Uh, next in alphabetical order, Dr. Priya Vakaria. Hello, everyone. So um, as usual, these articles can be found online at retinalphysician.com. Uh, this is not designed to be an exhaustive journal club, but rather using these articles as the topics of discussion. Um, so the first article is written by Justin Gottlieb. He wrote this article called Vitreo Retinal Fellowship Training, Oversight, and Assessment uh, with the subtitle Current Mechanisms of Assessment and Regulation Could Use an Overhaul. And just to summarize, it's a little interesting because I think he goes into something which we don't talk about much, which that for at least for vitreoretinal surgical fellowships, there is no sort of structure or oversight over retina fellowships, right? So some fellowships, for example, in, in other fields or in ophthalmology, oculoplastics, for example, we have like um, ASOPers or, or these organizations that kind of accredit these fellowships. Um, we do have AUPO kind of defining things via their fellowship compliance committee. Um, and the AUPO is a nonprofit that kind of oversees these programs and meets some, creates some sort of minimum standards. But it's interesting, you know, he talks about the data in 2020, there are 110 fellowship programs offering spots. And just over half of them are AUPO compliant, 67 were and 43 not. And if you look at who filled spots and how many spots there were, 85, it was about two to one ratio, 85 fellows and AUPO compliant fellowship spots, 41 not. Uh, and then he talks about, you know, he's a member member of ASRS and leadership. And actually, I ironically am on that committee um, looking at surgical metrics and kind of looking at how to create surgical metrics. And he's just talking about how the ASRS wants to get involved in terms of creating standards and metrics that can be used for, um, for you know, evaluating the general surgical fellows and graduating accredited fellows. So this is an interesting topic, Priya. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, because I think that I... I'll be very frank. I think that the idea, I don't think anyone can argue with the idea that it's better to have, in theory, some sort of basic minimums in terms of what you need to say that you are X doctor, X subspecialist, that you need a certain amount of training, that you need a certain amount of procedures and oversight to, to make sure you're competent to go practice. Um, I think the really interesting question is 
how do you determine what that is and who is in charge of determining what that is, that's when things get hairy. And that's probably why in ophthalmology, we only have it for oculoplastics. And we all know plenty of people who did non-ASOP oculoplastics fellowships and are very, very good oculoplastic physicians. So I'm curious what your thoughts are reading this on um, what improvements, I guess, could be done to improve regulation. Is Do you think there is a need for more regulation? You know, it's interesting, Jay, because when I was a resident, one of my really good friends did an ACE Opera's Plastics Fellowship. And I thought to myself, you know, thank goodness I don't have to worry about that in retina. You know, thank goodness I don't have another test or have, right. have something else. But now, you know, we're standing where I am, you know, and, and thinking about it from the patient perspective, you, you kind of hit the, the nail on the hammer on the nail or whatever that analogy is, but, um, you know, from a patient safety perspective, is there utility to making sure that there is a standardized process, um, and certain metrics that retina specialists need to meet to ensure patient safety. And I, I kind of like that. I, I think that that anything that benefits patient safety in my mind is always a good thing. You know, the biggest question is what do you do? Do you, do you somehow mandate all of these fellowships become part of the AUPO? Or is there another organization? Does the ASRS want to have a separate uh, fellowship organization that oversees all of these fellowships? Um, you know, other than just surgical numbers, is there something else that you need to evaluate competence? How do you evaluate competence? It's not just your training, but is there a test that needs to be done? And all of us know we don't really want to have more tests and tests don't even necessarily evaluate competence. So it's a very hard question. And I think no matter what is done, even um, you know our board exam for ophthalmology doesn't necessarily prove competence, but we certainly need, I, I would be in favor of having something um, to assure that retina specialists are meeting a baseline level of competency. Yeah, I, I, I think that's not arguable. I, I think the part we all struggle with being not that far removed either from fellowship or having colleagues or, or fellows right now is, is how do you do this without creating more work that's unnecessary? I feel like this is, this is like the political argument that's always there is like, do you create more regulation at the expense of more bureaucracy, more paperwork, more things you have to kind of do? when already fellows have so many things to do. And already the people who take time and effort to teach fellows already have so many things to do. So like if you can do it in a manner where it is actually high yield and actually achieving its purpose and not just creating work for the sake of creating work, um, that's the, really the question, Ajay. Um, your thoughts on this, Ajay? I mean, I think the, the people would argue what the goals are. Like Bria talked about patient safety, and I think there's some pragmatic retina specialists who say, well, this isn't just about patient safety. This is about protecting our field, um, which people have different sort of opinions on. I mean, what do you think would be the biggest goal of something like this? And again, do you think that this is something that does need to be approved, improved on? You know, I think, uh, I think it's definitely something that needs to be improved on since we don't have anything that's really in existence right now since the AUPO um, Accreditation is not really something that um, comes into play when, when looking at fellowships and when looking at your, um, your practice after fellowship. Um, I think one of the hardest parts is that so much of it, like these kind of minimums and stuff like that are based on self-reporting. Um, even for a residency, it's all based on self-reporting and everybody's perspective on what they did to count as primary varies. And so I think that's what makes it very hard to, to compare these programs across the board um, you know, I agree with Priya. I think the patient safety is definitely key, but but like you said, you know, some of it is definitely, to some degree, um, maintaining that uh, skill set, especially as we're seeing more and more people do 
medical retina who are not retina trained. Um, and certainly there's some arguments that, that, you know, you might be able to be sufficiently trained enough in residency, the way that um, injection volumes and stuff are increasing in training um, across the board to do some medical retina, but I can certainly see that there's a role for something like this to be able to help guard um, some of that um, that's happening right now. I think the biggest thing that I really appreciated from the ASRS is how they're raising the floor for training because, you know, if you're in a very small site with limited exposure to pathology, it's, it's harder to see some of those things that you're um, looking for uh, in some of these uh, fellowships where you get exposure to a lot of different varied pathology. But I think that having those programs set aside by the SRS, like the grand rounds, the case seminars, and like VBS does a great job with surgical rounds to try to, to raise the floor for all fellowships. So it's all there for people who, who might be in a program where they might not have other co-fellows, they might not have as much exposure to pathology. You know, and look, we're just three lowly retina specialists, none of whom who are in a leadership capacity, none of whom who know, I mean, we have heard of the history, but we're not some of the people who are doing this, like Dr. Gottlieb and other people who have spent many more years thinking about this. This is just three of our opinion. I mean, I think the two other issues that would come up in my mind is, you know, regarding the patient safety issue. And ACE offers, you can argue the patients are making more of a choice because many patients primarily will go to an oculoplastic doctors, um, especially for the cosmetic aspect of it. Um, they're primarily seeking, which is why, for example, oculoplastic doctors may have more success in directly marketing to patients. Um, and so that's where the ASOPERS designation may be helpful if you educate patients that these are ASOPERS. Does it mean they're better doctors or better surgeons? Or does it mean that they just had better access to those fellowships because of where they went to residency or who their preceptors were? That's a whole different conversation. But for retina, I really wonder if it would change patient safety until hiring practices and referring doctors actually cared about it, right? So if you're a hiring practice and you don't care if someone is ASRS, let's say board, like board certified or not, then it's not going to matter because you're going to hire them and they're going to do the retina for your group and their competence. Maybe it's a shame they never proved quote unquote their competence, but that's not actually going to move the needle in terms of making sure if that's the ultimate goal for an organization like ASRS APO, that patients are primarily getting care from ASRS doctors. And the same thing for referring doctors. They're referring to, because most patients are not going out and finding their own retina specialist unless it's a second or third opinion. Most of them see somebody, they're diagnosed with a problem and they're referred to somebody. So if you, the referring doctors have to care about this, right? Because if they don't care about that, then the patient's never gonna end up with someone who's designated as something as a first doctor. And, I, and again, that's assuming that you think that's better. We're assuming that we, we, I don't even know if we make that assumption at this point. I think the second issue and people, have, I, and I'm just saying what I've heard in the ground level bubbling is this question of control, right? And, and this is the hard part with retina is we go to meetings and everyone has a different opinion about surgery. Everyone has a different opinion about how to treat certain patients, except everyone agrees that anti-VEGF works. But, but besides that, we don't agree on anything from a, a, a treatment standpoint, partly because there isn't enough evidence for many things for any one person to kind of stake their claim and everyone else to agree. So people are going to disagree about what they think the best sort of quote unquote retina training is, and no one's going to want to hear that their training program is not meeting some standard that was created by somebody else. They're going to be like, who are you to tell me, you know, I've been teaching fellows for 20 years, how fellows should be taught, how retina surgery can be done. Well, we don't even agree on fundamentally what retina surgery should be. 
Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to create minimum standards, but but I think that's going to be the bubbling that you're going to get. It's going to be really hard. Like, what is what is the ultimate goal, right? Is the ultimate goal simply to have oversight and control over that? In which case, people aren't going to fall in the line for that reason. If the ultimate goal is to create a better rubric and a better sort of metric for for evaluating in a non work generating a non kind of in, inquisition type way, then people will buy in and do it. If they don't feel like it's being done for the right reasons, or they disagree with the premise, and they don't feel like they're enfranchised, then you're going to get this ratio, like I said, two to one ratio is not going to shift. That's just for AUPO and AUPO has pretty minimum requirements, you start putting in additional requirements, you're going to get a lot of those two thirds programs that are compliant shifting over to the one third. But any any additional thoughts Priya or Ajay? Before we break, sorry, I went a little uh, tangent there. You know, I'm just gonna make a comment on something that you said that patients aren't, aren't gonna know. You know, patients barely know what a retina specialist is sometimes, let alone an ophthalmologist, let alone, you know, it, it's, it's a very confusing process. You know, if you have a retina problem, you probably go through three or four different eye care providers before you get to the retina specialist. So I think by that point, I can't see that a patient is actually going to even know what an ASRS retina specialist is versus a non-ASRS retina specialist because you know the healthcare system is so confusing. So I agree with you. It's really going to be dependent on the referring doctors, and you know I, I think that otherwise I, I agree with everything that you said. Ajay, final thoughts before we move on. Yeah, I think it would take a very big concerted effort to make that uh, designation important, um, both with uh, really in some ways marketing it to our referring providers, as well as probably even like direct to patient marketing to educate people about what that means if if that was ever to move forward. Well, let's move on. Um, and I'm sure that people will be listening and have their own thoughts on that. But let's move on to the next set of articles. And then we have a couple articles in this issue touching on things we've talked about before, which is diversity and diversity and residency match. And this is a hot topic for a lot of reasons because the numbers are kind of striking. So we're going to start with this article, Improving Diversity in the Field of Retina. Um, the subtitle, Increasing Diversity Ensures an Equal Chance to Advance Patient Care Regardless of Background. Um, multiple authors on this, including uh, Mildred Olivier, um, friend of the program, Basil Williams, Joseph Coney, and, and the first author, Edie Miller-Ellis. And so, again, they talk about this idea that there is a shortage of URMs in ophthalmology, and there's a shortage of URMs in retina, which I had never actually seen that number. And I think that that number is actually very interesting to see. They quote less than 100 out of 2,400. So if you do the math and I cross off my zeros, like I was taught, like a good Indian boy, then that's about one in 24, less than that. So you're talking about less than 4%. Um, so I think that they go into the reasons why it's important. I think we've talked about a lot of those reasons in terms of matching the diversity of the patient population the diversity of thought that comes from bringing people in and how do you change things? And, and there are multiple programs that have been set up that are formal. And I think it's important to have formal programs. And there's also the idea that you just need to have awareness of this and then get people in who are diverse into leadership because that will help tear down these barriers. Um, Ajay, I'll start with you and I'll work back. Um, I don't really have anything to add, except I think people should read this article. I think it's, all these articles obviously should be read, but I think if I had to pick one to read, this is the one I would definitely read on your smartphone when you're waiting between patients or, I, cause I think it covers a lot of the things really succinctly that are important to think about, about why this issue is important. Because it's funny, the biggest backlash I'll get when we talk about this issue is people saying like, I don't understand why you're talking about this. 
everyone already knows that. Um, but clearly, it, it, even if everyone already knows that, it's not changing. So uh, your thoughts on this article or, or anything else you want to comment regarding diversity in retina? I agree. This is definitely a, a really impactful article. And I think that um, it ties in well with the next article also, which talks about the importance of this from not just a, a professional standpoint, but also from the patient perspective. And um, I think it's really something that we as a field need to continue to work on. And I think they really give some uh, great examples of how to, to work on this. And I think it's, it's really impactful. And at least from my perspective, um, you know, getting involved with um, URMs very early in the process to be able to help them um, even learn about ophthalmology is just such an important thing. And we are all you know, involved in different aspects of teaching and it's just a, a really important factor for us to take into consideration and um, make an effort towards building. Priya? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think that you can tell how important this is. I, again, I think everything boils down to patient care. Um, when you go to clinics with patient populations um, from underserved communities, you can just tell how much more comfortable they are with a physician of their same ethnicity compared to someone else. And I think that um, for, for many physicians, they don't realize how important this is until they're in a, in a patient scenario um, where they, they can actually see how comfortable patients are with um, those physicians. And so I think this is incredibly important. I think we all have to keep in mind how important this is as op, uh, a specialty as a whole. But in retina, you know, I think that these patients already are lost to follow up. Diabetics are lost to follow up. Our AMD patients are lost to follow up. And we have to do everything that we can to improve access to, to patient care. And one of that is really nurturing these relationships with uh, URMs to ensure that we have a better specialty as a whole. So let's transition to this next article because it covers some of these issues. And I think this is a great Q&A with a couple of people who are pretty smart and involved in teaching fellows and residents. So this is called the Changing Face of Ophthalmology Residency and Fellowship. Um, people kind of featured in this, Christina Wang, Elisa almost a coup, uh, Bill Mueller and Royce Chen, all were kind of in leadership programs spread around the country um, from New York to Texas, to, to Chicago, to Seattle. And they've covered multiple things, adjustments to COVID, um, virtual interviews, virtual education. And then they kind of end with the discussion of diversity and about um, millennials and kind of the communication and what's kind of changed in education. A lot of great things here. I think that they talk about mom a little bit again, which is the minority ophthalmology mentoring program towards the end. I, I really think the most fascinating thing is, is to, to, you know, Royce Chen made this point where he feels like sometimes he has to act as a translator, where he feels like he has to translate what his students or residents mean or what they need to older attendings do the same back. I, and I never thought about it that way, but I feel like I have to do that sometimes too. Um, it's uh, not quite as exciting as Kay and Peel's Angry Black Translator, but sometimes it, it can be as entertaining. Um, so, so my question for you guys, and Priya, I'll let you go first. You were the chief resident at Wills. Um, we all technically qualify as millennials. I don't know if culturally we're all millennials because I think it encompasses a really wide range of ages, but you're, you know, chief resident at a group where there's kind of the widespread of ages. Have you kind of seen a little bit of this kind of generational gap sometimes where it feels like there's two people talking in the room and they're not necessarily hearing each other? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that there's a big shift 
in the millennial age range, you know, of which you said, I, I would definitely call myself a millennial in terms of, of age range. Um, you know, there's definitely a big emphasis on work-life balance and even different ways that we learn. You know, we all grew up in a digital age. We're used to having information at our fingertips. I, you know, when I started residency, I got all the BCSC books and I only use the electronic version. <laughs> I don't think I ever opened the book. And so that's just a huge shift compared to how other people have been trained. And I've definitely been in the room where um, you'll have the younger generation of residents kind of um, talking about things in a different way where you have senior attendings who are used to didactics in a certain way or are used to clinic running in a certain way. And millennials are not afraid to challenge those concepts and to say, Hey, you know what, let's, let's revolutionize this. Let's make this more digital. Let's make this more streamlined. And, and I think that, um, while it can, can come across as a little bit more entitled, uh, that's where that translation is important. That's what Bruce Chen is talking about to say, Hey, you know, there are different ways to learn information, synthesize information. And that's, I think that's what he's trying to hit on the head is that, um, residency training is changing in that way to make it more current and modern to what the current generation needs. Yeah, and I, I think on the other, the flip side, I think sometimes there's an etiquette differences too, in terms of hierarchy and how things should be done. And like, I've had a couple of students where again, I don't, my pretty thick skin doesn't bother me, but I've had to educate them like, okay, this is how you email a faculty member, right? This is how you construct it. Like, don't put emojis in your emails. And, you know, LOL is not an appropriate thing to put in an email to faculty, unless you're really close with this person, right? Um, how to set up a time to meet and like, like this sort of formality, I guess we wouldn't call this formal. We just call this kind of normal interpersonal communication, but, but I, this generation operates different. Every generation operates a little differently in how they approach that. Uh, not talk, not calling your faculty members or addressing them by their first name, um, which seems crazy to us. But again, there's a, a generation now more and more commonly children are growing up and calling their parents by their first name. That's a choice that certain families have made. And uh, more and more teachers are, are adopting this because that's just, the way things have evolved in a world where the students know more about the Zoom technology they're using than the authority figures that are supposed to teach them. Like the hierarchy does not exist to the same extent as it did 20 or 30 years ago. Um, Ajay, what have you, you know, you've been in both sides, I'm sure. Have you had that encounter also with some of your students or mentees where you've had to kind of slow them down and be like, wait a second, you're gonna email or talk to Dr. So-and-so, you've got to do this. Yeah, I've definitely um, encountered that. Um, I, I certainly have gotten my fair share of emojis from senior faculty members as well. I think that the emojis have uh, revolutionized communication and is not no longer limited to one generation, Jay. Um, but <laughs> but I think that uh, you know Royce's whole point of of the translating it in some ways it's like compromising, um, which I think is what needs to happen. There certainly is. Uh, you know, a set of things that need to be communicated and learned and taught. Um, but I think it doesn't necessarily have to be learned and taught in the way that it was traditionally done. And I think that that's where that translation really comes into play, where um, it's trying to find that balance between um, like traditional learning, traditional teaching, traditional didactics, that hierarchy, and then sort of what what the newer generation really craves and wants in terms of the style of the teaching and communication. Um, and I think that the best programs are able to deliver that. And so, and that's where that translator really comes in is to find that, that happy medium between the two. So everybody feels like they've had their, their main priorities met, whether through their teaching as the teacher or as the, the mentee. So let's go to this last article to wrap up. Um, this is 
about education as well, but shifting gears, Justice Ehlers and Danny Memo from Cleveland Clinic wrote about how to integrate new technology and devices into surgical care. And they have the two perspectives, and that's why it's interesting to compare and contrast from the attending perspective and from the fellow perspective. Some of these things are the things we've talked about with adopting new book technology, prepare in advance, set aside ample time, don't do this on a day where you have tons of cases, try not to, um, you know, be rushing when you do this, pick the right cases to try the first thing, don't do it on some case where you, the outcome's hazardous or it's a monocular patient with, you know, you want to get in and out. And then review afterward, review the video, kind of figure out how you used it. I think one thing that's important to talk about is have someone available. If it's a new technology, who knows and is comfortable with it, if it's possible. Um, and then from the fellow, it was interesting to see Danny's perspective as a fellow. It was interesting that he quoted home improvement because I don't know how old he is, but I feel going back to the millennial thing. I don't know if that would be right up his alley, uh, but I did like the Tim Allen uh, reference. Uh, there's probably a whole host of students who have no idea what we're talking about, though I don't. I think they did a home improvement reboot recently, so maybe they will know what we're talking about. Um, but just talking about kind of being available, paying attention, wet labs, things like that. Um, I find now that I'm five years out that it is harder in a way, you have to make an active effort, Priya, to, to try new things because A, you're busier, your life is busier, B, you're better at doing surgery, hopefully. So you have a certain idea in your head how long things should take. C, you have kind of your rhythm, you know what you want to do. And if you're educating somebody, you're also kind of like, my thing is like, I don't want to take away from this person's education because if I'm trying a new thing, that means they're probably not going to be doing much watching me do it. I remember that as a fellow, sometimes it was like, oh man, it's a bummer. So-and-so doctor is going to be using this today. I know I'm not going to do anything. So he's going to be like figuring it out. So it's hard because you want to keep getting better and be on the cutting edge, but you, then you kind of sort of have to, to take away from someone's educational experience while you're doing it. Um, they can still learn by watching, but it's not quite the same having been in the fellow seat as doing the surgeries yourself. So like, what is your experience adopting newer things? Like, I feel like I get emails like all the time from reps being like, try this, try that. Sometimes I say yes. And sometimes I'm like, you know, today's just not a good day. Um, but I don't, I'm curious what your experience has been. So I think that, um, you know, I think that it all depends on what it is that you're doing. You know, if it's a new forceps or something that it's pretty similar to what you use, but maybe a slight difference. Um, I'm pretty open to trying that, but you know, one of the things that I'm interested to see is, as we're, we're developing a lot of new technologies in retina that are very different than anything we've done before, such as, um, insertable reservoirs, like the PDS or separate gene therapy or different things like that. And I'm very interested to see how I will personally, um, incorporate that into surgery. You know, we're all creatures of habit and none of us like change, although we need to change. We need to be current with the times. And it's that first couple of surgeries that we do that really color our experience with the surgery. And I think it's very, very difficult to do this once you're out of fellowship, because when you're in fellowship, everything is a new experience and you have someone sitting right next to you. Whereas once you're out, it's just you. And, and it's that those first couple of surgeries that are going to kind of dictate whether you do that procedure or not. And so, you know, I, I think that, uh, I, I don't even remember what your question was anymore, Jay, but, um, you know, I, 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 my question. <laughs> I, I definitely tend to try new things, but I'm, I, I have to admit, I'm not that far out of fellowship. And so 
how many new things have I really tried since I've been out of fellowship? I think my biggest personal test will be when we start doing things like PDS and subretinal gene therapy to see how, you know, I personally uh, do with that. And I think my plan would be to have the rep in the room and just like everything this article said, practice in the wet lab, um, talk to experts and, and get advice before you do it yourself. Because the first couple of surgeries are really going to make or break your experience with that technique. Ajay, what do you think? Anna, you're, you love new technology. I do. I love trying new things. Um, I, I really enjoy like watching videos and, and trying to figure out uh, ways to do the same thing. But I think that uh, there's definitely some practical things that have to be taken into account, including your day. And so it's definitely not a good time to try something new when you have like a super busy day because you want to be able to feel like you have the time that's necessary for trying that new thing. Um, I think I usually feel bad for like doing that entire thing and not turning over part of it to the fellow when I'm learning how to do it. Um, but I usually try to communicate in advance that this is the plan for this case. And I found that most of the time my fellows understand and they want me to hurry up and get comfortable doing it so then they can do it under, under my tutelage. And so I think it, it works out pretty well. And I think most of the time you explain that they're very understanding of that. Um, I think that talking to people is really key because um, the worst is when you have uh, a complication or unexpected outcome while you're trying something new and you really want to be prepared for that. And so um, I, I find that like whenever you're reading like a, a quick review of the procedure or you're watching the video, you don't hear everything that was edited out of that video. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's where really talking to the people who, who are the experts in that is really helpful. And most of the time they're very open to to sitting down and just uh, give you a quick call on the way home from work. Um, and that's been invaluable to be able to troubleshoot things as they do come up, because inevitably when you're trying new things, issues are gonna come up. Um, and so it's just really key to, to know what to expect and, and look out for that. You know, I, I just had a random thought that has something to do with what you just said, but a lot to do with what we talked about. So I'm gonna bring this whole conversation back to the first article, tying on what you just said about um, unexpected things. Did you guys see Sully? The movie, yeah. yeah. So that's the movie about Sully, who's this pilot who landed in the Hudson. Do you remember they have a scene in the movie based on real life where they run the pilots through these simulators, right? That simulate this unexpected event. And I just wonder, I know we have the IC and these things are supposed to teach you basics, but I really think what would be, if you really want to assess someone surgically, and I'm not saying we should ever do this, having people submit surgical videos is just creating busy work, I think. Because like you said, Ajay, you can just edit videos. It, that's testing someone's editing skills and recording skills, not their ability to operate, right? And having someone have a preceptor evaluate them is good, but most programs, the attendings are gonna be incentivized to evaluate them well. That's what happens with residencies now, because if you don't evaluate your residents or fellows well, then you get dinged and you get put on probation. And so you kind of want you, and you want them to succeed because they're your residents or fellows, but like, but I always think like it would be cool, probably expensive and not very useful, which is why no one would ever do it, to design like a vitreoretinal surgical simulation, but of different cases and then have different probabilities for things that could happen that are unexpected, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like you would be going through your, and it would be like three or four cases in a row and like two of them could be completely straightforward. And then the third one, oh my God, this thing just happened. Like, what are you going to do? Right. And I'm not talking about these janky like things where they do for like step two or step three, where it's like, you know, the CPR model and you have to press a button. I'm talking about like in the eye, you'd have to do something different. Um, 
I don't think there's a market for this, but but I think it's an interesting concept and idea. Now I'm just rambling. Um, Bria, you, you can take it from here because I, I I don't know where I'm. I I've forgotten where I started with this thought. You know, you never know. That may happen in the future because uh, there's some people that say that uh, one day we're all going to be sitting in a robot, like you know, in a ro robotic console, just kind of guiding the robot through surgery. And uh, you never know. We might be doing that from our living rooms uh, when we're we're all 60, 70 years old. Uh, so you never know. We may that that future may be here sooner than you think, where we we have this these VR simulators that we can just do from home. Ajay, do you like the simulator? I, I do like the simulator. Um, I always thought that it would be helpful. You know how they have like live surgery sessions? Yeah. Um, I think one of the downsides of the live surgery sessions is that you can't talk as really because most of the time our patients are under back. And so you don't get like the play-by-play -play and like the, the mental thought process. So I always thought it would be interesting to have like a, a full unedited video. And so you can like speed up a little bit like as you're going through, but you can actually go through that thought process out loud while showing like all the bloopers and stuff like that but let's be honest that will never happen on a national stage because nobody wants to get criticized by their colleagues and nobody and unfortunately there's enough people out there who want themselves to feel good who are going to tear down someone else because it's way easier to sit there in your podium chair eating a danish and sipping coffee and chatting the person next to you and be like how could they do that why would they ever do that then actually be the surgeon but none of us ever admit it so the only setting we actually see that in is like in-house like surgical conferences m&ms where it's like a closed safe net right because it's a safe space i completely agree with you though if we can get a culture shift to where it's ex where where people who are actually i think would have to start with people who have enough rep and who have enough kind of kind of points built up with the community over time that they can walk up there and talk about this stuff and then you can't really tear them down because you know they are this person who everyone regards because unfortunately this is like the internet culture is like if you try to do anything good you're going to get torn down for doing it but yeah i completely agree unedited video would be great but no one ever wants to make themselves look bad in public by showing an unedited video um now you can argue people don't want to do live surgery for the same reason um but i also think that case selection we've seen in live surgery is some people are very careful about picking these really easy cases and then Everyone's like, oh, man, that was such a slick surgeon. I think it's fine if you want to pick easy cases. I appreciate that. I'm not saying I would sign up to do live surgery myself. I, I have questions about that whole process. But I have things a lot more valuable if someone signed up a difficult case to do for live surgery because that's showing they're willing to, to be exposed, quote unquote, in public. They're not being exposed. They're just being a surgeon because we've all been in that situation where we've been in a case and things aren't going according to plan. But I think that we, I think that we shift between these two modes when we're actually in the box doing it and no one's watching us, then we kind of do whatever we think is best, but then we don't talk about it after. And then the majority is we shift in this other box when we're in a meeting or talking to our colleagues where there's the bravado and they're like, oh, I never do this or I'd only do this. It's not really educational or helpful, but, but I get where you're coming from. Yeah, I, I think it would take a, a special group of people to to actually pull that off. But I think that the, the stigma is slowly decreasing. I mean, like the VBS um, complication rounds, I think is really key sure. to, to do things like that. And I think, you know, it doesn't have to be a case that ends in disaster. I think it can be like a all's well at the end, um, but going through all those steps in between to get to that point and the thought process and stuff like that, I think that would be really, really educational. Priya has been stunned in silence by our ideas. I don't think, I don't know. <laughs> No, I mean, I agree. I would love to see, I would love to see more complications. Um, 
you know, as, as someone who has been in that surgeon seat and, and having things go wrong, I can see why um, someone would pick an easy case for a live surgery. Um, but I, I will tell you, I appreciate when people are very upfront with their complications, because I think we all learn the most from, from others' complications. And um, I mean, that's stuff I've learned the most from my own complications. So uh, yeah, I highly agree with that. I think that'd be great. I, I always thought if I did live surgery, I would actually just do the same thing I do normally, which is staff it with a fellow. Um, the only thing is then I'd feel bad if the fellow was like freaking out that people were like watching them. So then I was like, maybe I wouldn't tell the fellow, but then that feels a little like immoral to not tell them that they're, I was just, <laughs> I was just laughing. I'm, I'm sort of semi kidding, but not completely. Um, but yeah, I always felt like if you're going to do it, do what you do normally. Don't the fellow want, I normally, my fellows operate with me and we do different parts of the procedure. Like it also makes it way easier to communicate with the audience your thought process and what you're doing because you can tell them like this is what i'm telling like they can hear that conversation i think that would actually be very valuable i think the average retina specialist doesn't staff fellows but i think it's still helpful like you said ajay a lot of times we don't get that thought process all the time about each little thing and each little step that adds up so um this was great guys we ran a little over uh, i appreciate you guys coming on to preview this edition of retinal physician. Uh, we were all over the place with hot topics. I dropped a lot of hot takes. I got a lot of strange looks. Um, Ajay Kurian, Priyavakaria, thanks for joining me. <laughs> thanks for having us. Thanks, Jay. All right, guys, have a good night. As always, you can find this podcast episode and many other podcast episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 301 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. In addition, you can find links to subscribe and receive updates on episodes as they release into your email inbox. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Retina Podcast, and there are multiple ways to contact us. You can email us directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com. You can click on the contact us link on our website or reach out to us on social media. Many thanks to Jen Ford and the team at Pentavision for giving us the retinal physician articles in advance for review. Thanks to Drs. Bakaria and Korean for their time today. Thanks to Drs. Chang, Venenkasa, and Kai for their jobs producing this podcast and all the work they put into the social media promotion. And finally, listeners, the thank yous at the end are always reserved for you, for the patient care you deliver on a daily basis, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutter's <laughs> mouth. <laughs> Take care. Bye bye.